Hi, everybody. I'm Jenny Evanson. I'm the president of Stern Chats. And hi, I'm Bart Tenenbaum, and I'm the executive producer. We are so excited to be back in the studio to kick off season 10 of Stern Chats. Doesn't it feel great being here? It really does. I feel like a kid in a candy store. We're here on campus on a beautiful fall day right near Washington Square Park. We are thrilled to start hosting amazing guests and bringing inspiring stories to the Stern community. And while we're working on our newest season, we are resharing three of our most popular Stern Chats episodes. Enjoy! Welcome back to another episode of Season 2 of Stern Chats. We're excited to welcome distinguished professor Rich Hendler to the studio today. Professor Hendler is well known within the student community at Stern for being one of the most inspiring and exceptional professors at NYU. So Sherry, can you tell us a little bit more about Professor Hendler? Absolutely. Professor Hendler is a clinical professor of law and business at NYU Stern. Professor Hendler teaches business students the legal aspects of business, entertainment, and entrepreneurial concerns. When students talk about him, they say that he is not only one of the most knowledgeable and challenging professors that they have ever had, but also one of the most caring, who helps them find their voice and their passion. Now, in today's episode, we got some help from our Stern Chats team. This episode was researched and produced by Nasham Jamshidi. Also in the booth today doing the technical stuff, Dan Tennyson. Now, in the studio today, we have Andrew Slotnick, who also helped to direct this episode. Andrew, when you listened in the booth today, what really stood out to you? Definitely the idea that you need to ride the wave in life. You can't always be anxious and thinking about your next move. Things fall into place, and you need to create your own luck. That definitely resonated with me. That's cool. Now, you are new to the Stern Chats team, and you've never been on tape before, so would you mind just introducing yourself to the Stern Chats audience? Absolutely. So I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia. I graduated from UVA, Wahoo Wah, for all the who's out there. Spent some time in finance before Stern. I was on a trading floor at Citigroup and then went into investment banking. Definitely looking to do something else post-MBA. Well, we're so happy to have you on the team. Thank you so much for your participation and all your help on this episode. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Happy to be here. Sherry, before we get started, we got to thank our sponsor, Pierre Henry Socks. You like a quality pair of socks, don't you, Sherry? I love quality socks that have sharp designs, and I particularly like the ones that you don't have to keep on pulling up. Yeah, no, that's, that's no good. When you have a slouchy sock... It really ruins your entire appearance. You could have a thousand dollar suit and then one slouchy sock and then suddenly you look like a bum. I I personally do not have a thousand dollar suit since I'm still a, a student, but once I do, I look forward to a quality sock just like Pierre Henry socks. You know what else I like about socks, Sherry? When you have the interesting patterns. You know, a little splash of color. Yeah, I mean sometimes, you know, you're you're really looking professional, you're looking sharp, you got hair slicked back, you know, but you want that pop. You want something that really differentiates you, but also is high quality and stays up. That is exactly what you'll find in Pierre Henry socks. So do you like looking good? Do you like trendy and stylish socks? Well, one of our very own NYU Stern students co-founded a company for people like you, Pierre Henry Socks. Alejandro Alvarez, a current MBA one, saw the need for quality, stylish, and office-appropriate men's dress socks that don't need to be pulled up 30 times a day. Check out the 30-plus designs and plenty of holiday gift options that PH Socks offers on their website. That is phsocks.com. That website, phsocks.com. Use the promo code STERN to get 15% off. Thank you for sponsoring the podcast. What do you think? Should we just get started? Let's start the episode, Frank. Cue that music.
from New York University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Welcome to Stern Chats. We're here with Professor Richard Hendler. Professor Hendler, thank you so much for coming. Ah, my pleasure. It's great to be here. Excited to be here. Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Okay. Uh, no one is more excited than Sherry Holt because... Uh, <laughs> like, I've been uh, courting this interview for an entire <laughs> semester. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're famous to us. I mean, you work at the Berkeley Center. You're a prominent New York lawyer. Sherry is very familiar with you, but to everybody else that's listening, they may not know you outside of Stern. So can you just give them like a 20-second introduction? A 20-second introduction? 30 seconds is fine. About me? Yeah. Yeah, like oh. your bio, wow. background. I will just From, simply, oh, okay. Can you so, tell them you're a hugger? Mm, I, th- I think the, the essence, if I would describe myself, it would be humanity. It would be someone who really loves the conversation, loves curiosity, and loves people. It would, I would not define myself as a super attorney. Is that what Frank said earlier? Or like a well-renowned attorney? Prominent New York Prominent New York attorney. No, I would a- not define myself that way. I would define myself as someone who really just cares and loves for people. And you see, I, th- I think that's important because when, when people that aren't involved in law think about law and lawyers, sometimes they get an image in their brain that isn't the same one that you're describing. Yeah, so I would describe that, that as a relationship, right? It's a relationship that should not be so limited. It should be a perpetual relationship. And I think that's why I went into both teaching and practicing law. Well, well you had a sort of a different road to becoming a professor and a, a law professor at a business school. And I would love to hear that story of how you ended up to where you are today. So let's begin back in high school. Oh, at can the we beginning. Begin? Can we go at that the beginning? the best place to start. Oh, can I we thought go we were going to begin at your birth. No. Yeah. Well, wow. we'll skip. We'll skip that part. Okay. Okay. We'll High skip. school it is. Well, let's wait, Sherry. Let me rev up the Stern Chats time machine. Oh. All right. No. <laughs> open up the door. All right. You're in. No Wi-Fi inside here. You just have to have total focus. And we're back in high school. Okay. So, like, I'm sure both of you, we're, we're smart students. We're diligent. We regurgitate information. We try to do well in exams because that's what we were trained to do since first grade. We weren't trained to do the process, the implementation, the execution, the procedure. We were just more concerned with ultimately the destination, the grade. And so my grades were good. My grades were good, and I had a very, very large ego at the age of 17. And that ego wanted me to go to the best school that I can get into, but more importantly, the best school that society thought I should get into. So I applied to a bunch of Ivy League schools, and I also applied to a six-year medical program. And this six-year medical program was the first program ever at uh, a combination of RPI, University of Pennsylvania, and applied. And I remember during that interview, they'd asked me, like, why do I want to become a doctor? And I realized then that I was fabricating a story, that it was just simply a made-up story of why I wanted to become a doctor. It wasn't your true self. It wasn't my true self. And uh, it was fine, because I, I guess back then, upon reflection, I was not my true self. And I sold them. And then I got in, and that was the best school that I got into. And that school, since it was a six-year medical program, you condensed your four years of undergraduate education into two. And it required you to start earlier and go during the summers. So there we are, 
the first semester, which started, I guess, sometime in July. First week is all orientation. So you got beautiful quads, beautiful dormitories, resident halls, and that first week was absolutely great. No cell phones back then. Use the phone in the hallway. It's got the one with the zoom, like the, di- the, yeah, the that, rotary. That <laughs> rotary dial. Yeah, and zero black. So satisfying. Yeah. Large black, white, and silver. Oh. I think at that time, maybe it was 10 cents, maybe 15 cents, maybe 25 cents. And I made a phone call to a dear friend of mine, and I said, college is better than camp, better than sleepaway camp. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, then school started after, this, after the first week. And at the end of that second week, I was crying. Not, not figuratively and not literally. I was doing both. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was a bad shape. Both bad your shape. eyes were crying and your soul was and crying. And your soul was crying. Well yeah. said. Well Thank said. Thank you very much. That, I mean, okay, that is pretty traumatic. But okay. what was causing you to cry so deeply? I felt overwhelmed with the amount of work. And it was the first time in my life that I had anxiety that I would go to sleep with anxiety, wake up with anxiety. And not having anxiety, um, didn't know how to deal with it. So every day I would call mom and dad, and every day they would reassure me, and they would just say, you know, make it through the day, make it through the day. And that's what I tried to do. At the end of this third week, I knew I needed to come home to reset for that break. And the purpose of coming home was to tell my parents that I wanted to uh, not go to school anymore. I wanted to just leave and um, reassess what I wanted to do. So that Friday, when I arrived home, uh, my dad said, listen, we'll talk about everything on Sunday. Tonight, I want to make sure you have a good night's sleep. Sleep is important. And Saturday, we're going to go to a dear friend's party. He just recently got over a divorce. He purchased two two two-bedroom co-ops in the city, combined it into one very, very large one-bedroom apartment on 24th Street and 3rd Avenue. And he says, Saturday night, we'll go to the party. After the party and Sunday, we'll spend the entire day, and we'll just try to figure out your path. So remember now, I've just returned from college. I'm feeling miserable. And Saturday night, did not want to go to the party, but I did go. And when I got into the elevator, um, uh, there were about three people in that elevator, and I said hello to all three. Well, it turned out there was someone my age. I said, um, by the way, where are you going? And she said, I'm going to this party on, on whatever floor. You're, and, and you're like, perfect. I wasn't even thinking that way, but it was just an, it was a conversation. Sure. So I said, I think I'm going to the same party. So we walked in. We sat at a kitchen table, very similar to this circular table. And for four and a half hours, I never thought of my misery. She got my mind off of my sadness. Sounds like a special birthday. Is this a love story? Because they're my favorite (laughs) type of story. I don't know where it ends up, but we'll find out if there's a love story in there, Sherry. We'll find out. Anytime we can talk about, like, love uh, during the podcast, Sherry immediately, like, latches onto it. (laughs) It's all right. No, it's it's the most important part of life, right? Yeah, exactly. But you're at the the table now, and you floated away. So I floated away, right? So I never had run as high. I did a few times in my life. Back then, I didn't consider it to be floating on a cloud, but I was because all I was so engaged in being in the present, right? Mindfulness, just being in the present. For the last two weeks before then, I wasn't in the present. I was thinking how miserable I am, but yet I'm thinking, worrying about the future. So for those four hours, I'm feeling terrific, but I did not ask for the number. Wait, you didn't ask for her? They're not asked. You did Luckily, not ask? Nope. Oh, nope. no. She nope. must have been devastated. Not yet, because right after that, 
party, we went out to dance. Okay. Oh, so that's, we, even that's better. better. That's better, better right? Yeah. And with her brother and with her brother's girlfriend. So now it's the four of us. We go to a place called Underground, and that is where Barnes and Noble may still be in 16th and Union Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly Barnes and Noble. Still holding that Barnes and Noble. Yeah, on the on the north side of the park. On the north side of the park, then Underground. It, I forgot the name of the place. It may have been called Underground or something else, but it was Underground. And uh, we go downstairs and we dance until about 3.30. And the highlight of that evening is not just the dancing and having fun, but meeting Rick James. You met Rick so James? We met Rick James. At a dance? What was that? At like? a club. At a, at a club. So, so Rick, remember Rick James, who's no longer here. I forgot. Super, what was the name of her song? Super Freak. Super Freak. We're partying with, uh, with uh, Rick James. And um, just having a great time. Finished up around 3.30, 4 o'clock. And then we decided that I would drive her home. She lived in Long Island. I would drive from, you know, from the city to Long Island, from Long Island back to Queens. So instead of driving her home, we went to a diner. And I can tell you exactly what we had, but you don't need to know that level of detail. Milkshakes? No milkshakes. Rice pudding. Oh. Rice pudding. <laughs> That's a good pudding. Rice <laughs> pudding. <laughs> Rice pudding. And I think she had chocolate cheesecake. And maybe hot chocolate. You, you had such a New York night. That is the <laughs> that's ultimate. Night. That's a New York, New York night. night. You know, yeah. three in the morning going to a diner, oh, getting a cheesecake. Love that. And so then we decide to say goodbye. I don't ask for the number. I go to my car. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And she's going to go home with her brother and the brother's girlfriend. But then she follows me to the car saying simply that she left something in the car. She realized that I did not ask for her number, so she wanted more time together. So that I would ask for her number. She was stalling. Sneaky she was lady. Very sneaky. That was okay. she's a clever person. Yes. I like this person. Me too. And uh, so then we exchanged. I got her number then. Two days later, I called her up and uh, we went out on a sort of official date. So the worst day of my life up to this point, right? School was always fun. Sleepaway camp was always fun. I knew in first grade what I was going to do. I knew second grade and third grade and fourth grade. So, fourth grade. so it was pre-programmed. But going to college changed everything for me. So when I came home, just think how miserable, one of the worst days of your life, but for someone passing. That's the way I felt. And see, I think it's important to remember that you have to put yourself in the mind of a 17, how old were you? Yeah, 17, 18. 18-year-old person, because I always think of this too, like in terms of either like sadness or love, right? Like Charlie Brown's like the Peanuts cartoon. Like when you're five and you like love something like a lot, you're, you're loving at your maximum capacity for the ability of a five-year-old. You only know so much. So when you're 18 and you're just in despair, even though that may not compare to like someone down the road who has like more context, their despair, that's the most despair you can even comprehend at that point in your life. Correct, correct. And it's, again, the first time I've ever suffered yeah. through anxiety. Yeah, which is right. equally earth-shattering. And it's correct. incredibly oppressive. Yeah, yeah it kind yeah. of pervades, it gets in every crevice exactly. of your day. Exactly, exactly. Because that's all you're thinking about. It's interesting because it sounds like in 24 hours you went from the worst day of your entire life to... Quite a delightful, a delightful day. Yeah, a good day. She lifted right? you up. Day. So Sunday, what do we do on Sunday? I, I don't, I don't see this lady on Sunday, but I speak to my parents, and my parents decide. Listen, we need your well-being. Uh, we have to consider your, you know, your emotional well-being, physically, your soul. Why don't you just drop out of this program? But one thing you need to do, one thing you need to do, is to make sure that you go to school, any school, 
It could be a university, it could be a college, it could be a community college, but the one thing you need to do is to be in school because you need to be able to get out of bed, put one step in front of the other, and push on. Because if you don't push on, you'll just stay in bed. And if you stay in bed and you don't get out, that's what we call like being depressed. You know, I called up schools, I think this was sometime in August, and I fabricated stories to try to re-enter Cornell, to try to re-enter Brown University. You told them what they wanted to hear. I told them what, I want, what they wanted to hear, but none of those places would re-admit me because I had rejected those places, I guess, sometime in January, February. Well, and now it sounds like you're in a pickle. Yeah, I'm a little bit in a pickle, but there's always schools for you. So luckily, NYU undergrad came to me. They didn't really come to me. I called them up, and I got accepted on the phone. All right, so NYU accepts me. I have some time to think about, and I decide to, uh, decide to live on campus. So back then, again, it starts in September. There are basically there are three or four undergraduate resident halls. At that time, there's, there's now what's called Lipton. There's uh, Weinstein. There's Rubin. There's um, Brittany. So there are four residential halls. Most people com- uh, commuted. I didn't want to commute. I still wanted to feel like I was in sleepaway camp. And so I moved into Rubin. Rubin is on Fifth Avenue and, let's say, 11th Street. I moved in. I got, met my first, uh, my first day. I met my two roommates. <clears throat> we went to you know, dinner together, had a nice time. Uh, week started. School started. School was a breeze. Well, it wasn't as intense as that six-year program where classes were every day, Monday through Friday, labs. This was 16 credits, which basically meant back then 16 hours over five days. Wow, so wow, there was a decent balance ahead. So that following weekend, right now, my first sort of official, my second weekend here at the university, I called that girl that I met, and I said, would you like to go on a third date? So we go on a date, just a terrific date in the city. We go to a Japanese restaurant, and both of us enjoy dancing. So that time we went to a place called Studio 54. Oh, my God. Yes, I think we may have seen this uh, (laughs) in uh, television and movies and American (laughs) history, mostly. Yes. And if um, everything that is described and shown on those, in those films is very true. Ah, I didn't participate in any of that stuff. Of course you didn't. I just wasn't such a VIP to do so. Right. But you saw it in front of you. So at around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, I said, please, why don't I show you the university? Now, I need to preface this, Frank and Sherry. There is no way that I want to do anything but to show this girl the university and my resident hall. Sure, because okay. you're proud of it. You just think it'd be nice to show her. I just wanted to show her my life. Yeah, right? sharing. Okay. I don't, yeah, I just wanted to show I don't think I was proud of it yet, Frank. I just wanted to show her where I was living, what I'm up to, what my room looks like, etc. So Sherry's thinking it was really trying to, you know, kiss and fool around. But it wasn't. <laughs> that was from well, that look that I got. Well, it is 2 a.m. It is 2 a.m. So it's a little suspicious. It's a little suspicious. It's sus- I mean, if it, you know, we don't need to get into it, but they're on a date. <laughs> If they want to enjoy a day together, that's the prerogative of both people, Sherry. Indeed. So come back to the dorm and uh, go to my room. I go into the room. There's two other people. Like there are three beds. And I turn on a light and a lamp and to go to my, my area. And I look to my area, and my roommate is sleeping in my bed. Not a big deal. When you go to sleepaway camp, I am not possessive of my mattress. Not a big deal. <laughs> but I looked over to his area, and his bed was unoccupied. And I looked to the third roommate, and he wasn't in the room yet. But when I looked a little bit more closely, my roommate was in bed with his partner. So that disturbed me. It disturbed me, like, why didn't he use his bed? 
And There's a lot uh, of confusing things going on in my life, right? Yeah. Over the last month, That's a lot peculiar. of confusing. It sounds okay. like alcohol. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So I didn't stay there that evening. I went back to Queens. The following Monday, I go to, go to class, and I realized that I, I want to change my, my room, my unit. So I go see a gentleman named Ken who's in housing as an undergraduate uh, housing director, and I just requested a move, and I explained to him why, and they granted me the move. So Tuesday now I'm moving from Rubin to Weinstein, and I move in, I get into my room, and I meet a very, very nice, and you know parts of this story, Shari, really just a beautiful guy, physically stunning, speaks five, six, six different languages, and he turns to me and he says, it's really nice meeting you, Rich, what's your name, Omar? Rich what? Rich Hemler, Omar, Omar. So where are you from? Senegal. And I was studying a little bit of, of Africa in high school. And I just remember saying, well, that's on like the, the west side of, of Africa. He was shocked that, that I knew where it was. He turns to me and says, what is your religion? And I tell him that I'm Jewish. I said, well, what is your religion? He says, I'm Muslim. And I says, yeah, I'm somewhat familiar with the faith. I know the number of times you pray a day. My neighbor down the block in Queens is Muslim. This is going to be terrific. He goes, it's not going to be terrific. And you're like, what? Yeah. And I asked him, like, why? He says, I need to be frank with you. I'm in favor of the destruction of the the state of Israel. So, yeah. So, clearly, that's not a roommate situation that's going to work. This is the first conversation that you guys are having together? This is the first conversation. Other than than the niceties. So, it's back to Ron and housing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because Back to Ken. Oh, Ken. I'm sorry. Not going to happen. So, I'm walking to Ken. I get to Washington Square Park. And I remember someone coming over to me and saying, do you want to buy something? Back then, Washington Square Park was filled with drug dealers. And I got so irritated with what was going on that I was irritated with him. And I probably, I don't curse, but I remember cursing really loud. Please just leave me alone. So I go see Ken. But before I see Ken, I realize, wow, what's going on in my life? I ran away from this six-year program. I ran away from my first roommate. And now I'm running away from my second roommate. I'm not running away. And so I turned around. I never went to see Ken. I turned around and I said, this is conflict. You don't know what to do, but I know one thing. I'm not going to run away anymore. I'm going to live in that moment, be curious as to Omar. I'm going to go back. And what brings people together? I thought there was always two things, music and food. So I said, Omar, you know, I'm going to be transparent with you. I was going to ask to move. I don't want to move. I really want to go out. And let's see if we can like each other as friends and not talk politics. So that evening, we went for great food. We went for dancing. And it turns out that I'm glad that I did because he's a dear friend of mine. We speak twice a year this day on my birthday and his birthday. And what was ex- exceptionally thrilling, what he, he is the wealthiest person I've ever met. So Frank and Sherry, when you're in college and you're on a tight budget, but someone's not on a tight budget, they pay for everything. And so Omar paid for all those dinners and clubs, et cetera, et cetera. The following semester, he moved down to a Soho loft, but I stayed in Weinstein. So that was the big moment in my life, right? To be able to deal with conflict. Yes. Uh, to analyze it and approach it and deal with it. But also to be open to different types of relationships and friendships. Um, I think... That is really important to explore, especially in a university environment where the stakes are really, really low. Sort of the types of people that you like to be around, despite their 
ideas about the world or their political leanings because there's so much more to somebody than who they voted for, you know, or, you know, what they believe about, you know, this. I realized it was the relationships that were most important to me, right? Because I saw where Omar and I could have gone and where we are today, right? So asking someone, well, tell me what you're thinking and allowing them to answer that opens up the conversation. So it's not so binary. And to tie that into then my path. So I just realized I don't need a path just yet. So at a 17, 18 year old that thinks you need to go to engineering school, medical school, dental school, law school, I didn't need the path. So I became open to think about other paths. So instead of having a trunk, I realized you need to look at the branches. And that was the big moment in my life. So when we asked the question about, like, where I am today, it was that moment of open-mindedness, dealing in the present, and uh, not passing judgment, and realizing that my story doesn't have to have a path just yet. I just need to be curious. Yeah. You know, it's interesting about the conflict, too, being the, the doorway to embracing something uncomfortable, getting outside yourself. You know, I think it's important for people to embrace conflict. And I wonder if in... The study of law and just, you know, legal work, that's something that you, know, you can help people through. Because isn't when there's legal disputes, is that not conflict? I think it's really important to not have that uncomfortable space own you. Because if that uncomfortable space owns you, you will never get to that space. And so you need to attack it. And I say attack it, I don't mean aggressively, but you need to be uncomfortable. And the more uncomfortable you are, the less sort of those life moments control you rather than you controlling that moment. You can own your moment. You can own it. You could be uncertain, but it's all good. And don't stay within your trunk because your trunk is the comfortable zone. The branches make you uncomfortable. So the more branches you can do, the more you can figure it out. And so I think over two or three years as an undergraduate here at the business school, and I said that, that to me was the most important thing about life. Um, Yes, there's always family, right? Family is vital, but within that family, you need your community, you need your friendships. That's where you gain your positive sort of momentum from. And so when I look to the future of what I wanted to do, it had to be where the friendships were key. But I try to look at a profession where you can maintain a relationship both in the profession and outside the profession. So if you look at therapists, I don't think they can really be friends with their patients. They may be prohibited from doing so, but it's awkward. You can be with your, with your clients. So it's more than just a professional relationship. It's also a personal relationship. So, for example, Frank, like if I represented you, we would get to a point where I would have been invited to your wedding. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And I would have been able to, you know, meet this sweet, beautiful lady who was of gymnastics in California. Yeah, and you would have had a good time. And I would have had a good time. <laughs> it would have been Hoboken, New Jersey. Could have, could have shown you how great Jersey is. There, were yep. lo- there was yep. lots of great dancing. Lots of great lots dancing. Lots of great dancing. And Sherry, had he invited me, I would have given him a gift, $518. And I don't even ask for a seat at the table because I just dance all the time. It's a very specific <laughs> number. Yeah, it's a very specific number. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. <laughs> It's a very it's a good number. I gotta know why that number. Uh, it's, it's from Judaism, right? Eighteen is yeah, 18 exactly. Means oh no, it's yeah. multiple. So we explain that. So actually, why don't you explain? I, uh, well, I, no, I will know. just say eighteen. It means life, right? Longevity, you know, happiness. Five hundred is the five hundred. 
Oh, right, 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 right. But the so. 18 has a religious significance. 18 has, I don't know if it's religious, as it probably does, but perhaps maybe spiritual. Just means to me, life, longevity, happiness, fun, humor. But I do want to go back. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do, I do. I do. So, you want to get to the cymbal crash at the end of the rock song. Yeah, yeah. I want, I, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. as a drummer. Are you a drummer? Are you really? No, I'm, I'm drummer. not a drummer. Yeah, yeah. But I'm I do appreciate a good cymbal crash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would do that really well. But we say all that to say there's a symbol crash at the end of the story. There should be. There should be. There has to be. Well, I could, I could add one in. We, I could, we, I could we add should. one in okay. post-production. <laughs> okay. yeah. All right. So here now, I'm, what, still in my first year, I'm just taking different courses, right? I'm taking acting classes. I'm taking improv classes. I'm taking accounting classes. I'm taking classical literature classes, Greek mythology. I'm just exploring learning with just the process, the journey of learning. Not so much concern with grades. Understand the process. If you understand the process, you will do the best that you can possibly do. But I needed that relationship. And so I guess through internships, I realized that uh, for me, the practice of law seemed to solve problems, seemed to always be an answer, or at least through your own optics, there would be an answer. And um, through debate and mock trial and moot court, I realized that I wanted to pursue law. Didn't know if I wanted to practice law, but I knew I wanted to get smarter. But in law school, right, in law school, I realized, like, the practice of law was pretty cool. And I loved law school professionally, academically, socially. It was wonderful. And so let me just tell you what happened at the end of the law school, right? Um, well, a couple of things happened. I guess at the end of my second year is when most uh, two L's work during the summer. And if everything works out, you get the offer at the end of the summer. And everything worked out that I received the offer from the second largest law firm in the world. And what I really liked about it, I worked in a transactional department, the real estate department. I liked the people. I liked the culture of that department. I didn't know the culture of the big firm, but I knew the culture of these 40 people. I liked that. I liked the values that they shared. They really were mindful of work-life balance then. But more importantly, at that time, it was playing to my skill sets. And so at the end of the summer, I accepted a job, was thrilled, going into my third year, sometime in November of my third year, that firm, that second largest law firm, folded. They filed for bankruptcy. Didn't see that one coming. Wow. Did not see that one coming, <laughs> Did right? A lot coming. But I didn't see other things coming when I was 18, right? So I realized, just ride the wave. Just ride it. It will all work out. You have to believe it works out. Ride the wave. And so what, what does that mean? One step in front of another step. One step in front of another. Get out of bed and do the things you need to do to try to make, you know, try to create some luck in your life. So luckily, I got my job two weeks before I graduated from law school. So let's say we graduate May 15th. Everyone's got a job except for folks at, at Finley Cumble. I got the job sometime in May working at a large law firm. Wow. Under the wire. Under the wire. But I just felt it was going to work out because of that deep level of angst when I'm 18, where I worried all the time. I realized worrying doesn't solve anything. I was just about to ask, how was your anxiety at this point? Had it dissipated after yeah. you uh, dropped out of the initial program? It dissipated after about a year. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. It and sounds I, like, yeah, I mean, fired in the kiln of adversity you no longer had those big spikes of stress. Um, you learn how to process stress, right? So when you first feel it, it's new, and you become anxious, and you become nervous. But when you realize that life is stressful at times, it could be, very well be, 
you learn how to process that level of stress. Uh, you learn to smile. You learn to have humor. And if you, if, you, if you associate with people, Sherry and Frank, that are really like supportive of you, they're not jealous of you, uh, they listen to you, they're curious about you, they help you get through those times. And then when you share those times and you become vulnerable and you tell people like how you feel, they help you so that re- reduces your angst. So I've learned like in life, you need to associate with people that are really positive, but they're honest with you, but they can't be jealous. Because if they're jealous, they're going to be really happy that you're sad. Interesting. Because they can make them feel better. Yeah. Even if, the, I think we call those frenemies. Frenemies. I like that. Right? I like yeah. that. No, I just learned I, that recently. I, I do. I think that you bring up such a great point, which is you know your true friends when they are happiest for you when you are at your happiest. Yeah. And they're, right, exactly. Well said. And even maybe even happier than you're feeling. Right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and so I, I don't have those moments. I do, obviously, when my dad passed away, when my, my nephew passed away, when my brother-in-law passed away. Those are really difficult times that only time numbs. And you learn to talk about those people to help you through those times rather than not to talk about them. So that's what I've learned, right? You know, keep that together. And, and so when I graduated law school, yeah, I, I had the job. I had a, another job. But I also need to tell you what happened in my last year of law school as well. Sure. Okay. So that's when I got married. I got married at 25. That is so young. 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 Wow. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good year. Young. young. May I ask, was yeah. it the lady from that's the, the, symbol. the cheesecake lady? Cheesecake <laughs> lady? That's what you got of from the story, the Sherry? So, well, I really like cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you focused. <laughs> I'm just joking. You hear what I mean, you want to hear. I'm not joking. Like I really do like. I cheesecake, had forgotten yeah. about the cheesecake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Sherry, when I t- when Alina hears this, she'll just want to add it's chocolate, chocolate, che- chocolate cheesecake. Oh, she. Right? I feel like she and I would really get along. <laughs> you would. You <laughs> married the girl from the party. I married the girl oh, from the my party. Gosh. The one that showed you that everything was going to be okay. The one that gave me the four hours of relief because we. I did not open up yet. I was not vulnerable. I didn't share like how miserable I was feeling. I just stayed in that moment and talked about, hey, what are you doing today? Why are you at this party? Who do you know? What do you like? What's your favorite color? Who's your favorite jazz artist? Stuff like that. I didn't say, like, okay, where are you going to school? I stayed away from that. It would have Got been it. perhaps expressive, but such in a negative way. Right. And so I didn't go there. But it was such relief and a wonderful conversation. Well, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like you got to know her between the lines of her resume, yes. which is yeah. our tagline here at Stern Chats. But <laughs> you got to know, line? which is, you know, we want to know the story behind the story. You Not not what you do, not where you necessarily go to school, but what makes you you. And We it, get lessons from that. We exactly. learn things from that. And if you're an undergrad or a grad school student or you haven't come to Stern yet and you listen to the story, there's a bunch of things you can learn. One of them is go to that party. Give it a shot. Be comfortably uncomfortable. You might just meet a special person, and you'll meet Rick James. And you'll have <laughs> delicious <laughs> you'll meet Rick James. That's a great way to yeah. sum that up. So, I mean, it's, yeah, that's our favorite kind of story, for sure. I mean, all these lessons that you have derived from, like, a lifetime of, like, adversity, it seems like you think long and hard about everything you do, and you attach a lot of meaning to it. Teaching your students... You know, working at the Berkeley Center, $518, you know, you, you try to find the root meaning and the deep, like, humanity in simple things. I don't heavily analyze, 
but I like that deep relationship. And I want to I know about how that relates to the intersection of business and law. Can you explain to just the, the listeners the intersection of business and law and why you can derive deep meaning from those two things? Well, how about I don't think you will ever go to a, a strategy meeting without having an attorney in that room. She needs to be in that room. Because today, whether it's technology, whether it's digital, whether it's contracts, any, any business maneuver that you will do will definitely affect you legally. And so if you think of any decision a business person makes, they have to make it within a certain legal framework. Um, because if you get outside that legal framework, you can destroy your brand literally in a second. So there is the constant interrelationship between business and law, as there is also with me with respect to like human rights. If you look at all three, there's just always that interrelationship. There isn't one thing. If you look at revenue, for example, where, where's revenue derived? Where does it ultimately come from? It comes from contracts. And so if, if someone can escape a contract, revenue declines, and all of a sudden there's a disaster. And so I don't think you can, you can make business decisions without asking for lawyers. So just the other day, I was uh, last Wednesday, I was inducted as an honorary battalion chief in the fire department of, of New York. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank you. That's Thank great. you. Thank you to be in. Those are brave people. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the commissioner was there, and he introduced a whole bunch of people, but he introduced the new uh, lawyer for the fire department. And he said the big difference over the last 20 years is that you can't make decisions without asking your lawyer that you need to understand how this affects you from a legal perspective. You don't pick up a paper today without looking at companies' potential liability for actions of its employees, actions of its directors, actions of its officers. So if you just take a look at, for example, Gawker, invasion of privacy of right. a famous person, and where are they today? Well, so they're, they're gone, right? They're gone, right? They filed for bankruptcy as a result of one tort. And in bankruptcy, they were sold. And if you look at very, very large companies, if you look at like... Uh, Texaco, that used to be the world's, one of the world's 10th largest companies, as a result of uh, interfering with the contract, they don't exist anymore in the same way. They, too, filed for bankruptcy. And so every business person needs to understand the framework of law and needs to understand it so that they're not scared of the law and they can participate in that conversation with a bunch of lawyers at the table. So that's a conversation for another day in terms of, like, I do think all MBA students should be, you know, not forced. I think it should be a requirement to take some law class here because everything you do, there will be a lawyer in the room. There will be a crisis manager in the room today. There will be PR in the room. And so business people need to surround themselves with those professionals, but also to be able to talk the language. And so I, I share it this way. If you are opening up a, a, every company today is a tech, but Frank and Sherry... So, Sherry, if you did a, a tech company today, right, at that table, you would want certain people. And one of the people that you have to have with you is, a, is an insurance broker. Another person you have to have with you is an accountant, chief financial officer, right, for some numbers. And also, you need a lawyer at that table as well. So she needs to be able to guide you to make sure you stay away from trouble. And today, there's always the possibility of liability in everything you do. So it's to minimize the risk of, uh, of liabilities. So that's the, the interrelationship. I mean, all these lessons that you have derived from like a lifetime of like adversity, being comfortably uncomfortable, how do you bring all those lessons into the classroom? Because you're, you're a prominent teacher here. We know you're 2014. You got the Distinguished Teacher of the Year Award. You've been teaching here for how many years is it now? 1983, I became full-time. So 30 years teaching students about 30? law. And, is it 30? Wow. Oh, it's over yeah, 30. It's yeah, over it's 30. 2018 coming up. 
No, right? I, I, th- I, I can't be. Because if I'm, what, 48 now? Let's just settle on a number. So <laughs> 28 <laughs> years. We'll do several cuts. We'll be like, so 28 years. <laughs> so 29 years. One of those I'll throw in. <laughs> but you've been teaching here for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And you've learned all yeah. these, these lessons, like in the story that you told us. How do you bring those lessons with you into the classroom for students? You treat it like a, you treat it like a dining room table. How's that? You treat the, your friends in the room as you're just having lunch or dinner either at the kitchen table or the dining room table, and you have a conversation. And sometimes that conversation goes on paths where maybe there is a life lesson to talk about. I always say to myself, there's things that I would have wanted people to tell me um, when I was in my mid-20s. And I'm sure my parents shared that with me, um, but they're parents, so sometimes you may not listen to them as much as you want. Or should. Or should. And it is just like if I think of writing a book and one day I will complete my book, I put things in buckets. And and one is that I do hope that uh, you have a wonderful family. And I would hope that in our class together, I will teach you about the relationship of business and law and how important it is to understand law and not be afraid of it and ask the questions and and drill down and, and have sort of a blueprint of how to make decisions. But when you make decisions, you have to consider what the impact is legally. But I think more importantly for you, it's your relationship with Jenny. And that's going to grow. So there are things that that my wife has taught me that other people have taught me that I think it's really important to pass down. I will will stop discussing in a classroom once I publish my book. We'll get in now, folks. But that book, you know, may not be coming. You know, I'm stuck on the third chapter. What would you title that book? Uh, It's in your hands right now. That's the that's the chapter. It's in your hands. It's in your hands. Yeah, but I may want to call it I may want to call it rocket or launch. Because there are pivots in your life. Sure. What I just call like launch. Those, those are times to figure out what's important and then launch and become that rocket. So I haven't figured out that title yet, but I know the buckets. I know the chapters, right? And I know the chapter is your, your relationship with your partner, the love, right? It's so important to, to love someone and to be in love with. It's also to, to love a career, right? You can't love an employer because the employer can't give you love back, but it's real important to love a career. See, I'm glad you said that because at an MBA program, we're yeah. all trying to get jobs, a lot of us, right? Yeah. And, and of course, you've got to work hard. But I, I always try to think that, you know, your job probably doesn't love you back, right? You, it'll take all the work you'll give it, but it won't love you back. That's worth considering. Yeah. People love you back. They sure do. So or that, a puppy. Or a puppy. You know? And that's why a lot of people now get puppies. And, it's the unconditional love. Yes. Well, that's why you know that value and culture is so important in organizations because that's where you will get, like, work love. So fall in love with someone. And to do that, it's really tough. You gotta be vulnerable. You gotta be willing to like risk a broken heart. You gotta be willing to have your heart shattered. And it happens, and then you have to rebuild it. And then you gotta try again. But I, you know, I'm wondering about, uh, so we just said it about work. Yeah. But how is that different than, let's say, uh, causes, right? Because you can do work where you get paid, but what about if the work that you're doing is for a good social cause? So when you first said that, this is what I thought of. Some people don't enjoy what they do at work. I have yet to figure out the, the noun to describe what I do, except for love. So what I do every day is not work, but work may be a positive reference today. But over my years, work was always the negative connotation. It's something that you don't want to do. I'm lucky enough to do everything that I want to do, and I just hope that I do it till I'm 97. And you what you need to learn, in my opinion in life, you need to learn your sort of skill sets, your, strong, your strengths, so you play to your strengths. Most people don't recognize them. And I call them like super skills, like superhuman skills. I was like, you're a superpower. 
your superpower. Like, like Sherry's superpower is to be enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. For okay. example. Good. For example. Good. Right. She's and way so, to the right of the mean. She's way to the right. So that means she has to be associated with like sports, right? Sure. In some way. Yeah. So you have to realize that superpower. Yeah. And then most people don't, but your friends will recognize it for you. Because when it's a superpower, it comes too easy for you. So you don't recognize it as a skill. So it's your community of friends that tell you really where they see you. Oh, that's, that is insightful. You can't see it yourself. You won't be able to see it yourself. I never thought of that. Because it's too easy. Wow. You always think of a skill set, hard skills of something you acquired through difficult moments. You, have, you do no work. You're just imbued with this, this ability. Correct. But when you had mentioned that point, I just felt there was someone who was working who did not enjoy what they were doing. But hopefully it gives them enough skill sets and maybe enough compensation so that after work they can use those superpowers and money to effectuate change. Um, that's how I understood your question to be. Well, I mean, that's a, that's, a part, that's a very good answer. But I'm also wondering, because, like, work is work sometimes, right? But you can also apply your superpowers towards things that are work but have a higher calling and have a higher purpose, like social justice causes. Yeah. You know, have you ever gotten involved in that, or are there any causes that you really believe in? Because that's different than just work. Oh, sure. So I guess that's twofold, right? There's the personal cause, and then there's the, the professional so why am I, why was I sort of, you know, given this honor of being this honorary battalion chief with the fire department? I guess it was since, um, you know, 9-11 that I volunteered my, my legal time to firefighters and, and police officers rendering free legal advice and, uh, and plenty, of, plenty of work for all of them free of charge. Been doing that for, I guess, close to, what, 15, 16 years with true meaning. And that will always stay a part of what I do. So my relationship with my clients is not about compensation. It's about making a difference, effectuating change in their lives. Um, yeah, that's part of one of my buckets, right? You have to do some meaningful work. And uh, it's selfish because you feel really good doing that work. You know, you get back that love and you get back that thank you. You get back that smile. And personally, it is always to cure type 1 diabetes. I have four children. My bookends are girls. My boys are in the middle. And my 22-year-old son, who just recently graduated from Stern, Stern, was diagnosed with type 1 at the age of 10. So that's where I put sort of that social sort of like, I want to cure that medical you know, illness. And so time and money is basically exhausted yearly through our not-for-profit. Yeah, so those are my two things, right? Render plenty of pro bono legal work for everyone in need. It's not on sort of the, um, you know, the, the front where you have others trying to get people who are innocent out of jail. Mine is sort of just helping people that um, can't find that free lawyer, finds that lawyer to help but only want to charge. I'm the one that will do it without compensation. Um, so those are my two social causes. Not prominent, just competent. <laughs> well, you might be the busiest man at NYU Stern yeah. because not only do you teach numerous different classes. You teach in the undergrad and the graduate, and you teach the part-time program. You teach entertainment law and business law, but you also do your pro bono work, and you're spending time with your family, and you have your own private practice. So what is it about this pro bono work? Because you also offer it to your students um, who are in your class that is so meaningful to you, and how do you think that you'll be able to, you know, reap the benefits, or they'll be able to reap the benefits down the road? Well, can, um, I, can I add something yeah, to that? Yeah. I, as someone that doesn't know a lot about law, when I think of like having a legal problem, it's terrifying. Right. It really is. It's frightening because 
it's like if you didn't know how to play chess and someone's like, well, for your whole life and all of your savings, beat me in this chess game. And you're like, well, I don't know how to play chess. It's terrifying. It's like this, um, this combat for which you have no idea what the rules are, you know? And I can't imagine what that feels like if you get embroiled in that situation. So you're going to file some tax returns at the end of the year. Is that correct? Yeah, well, I right. have an accountant. Right, you have an accountant. I personally will not be. But. <laughs> or, or you have a program. If you can't afford the account, you have a program that does it for you. But a lot of people don't have that, that attorney. There's not a program just yet. Maybe one of these days there will be a robot that you can ask the question and get the answer, perhaps. Hmm. Perhaps. So I become that person. So I say, Frank, you can call up someone and pay $1,000 an hour, and they'll give you really good advice, and they'll charge you $2,500 for two and a half hours. But all you have to do is call me, come to me, and bring me a cappuccino or a latte or a smoothie. <laughs> and they give you all the, Yeah, and they give you all the advice you ever need for the rest of your life. And that maybe one day, 20 years later, someone that you helped at the age of 22 decides to give some money to the university for a scholarship in your name. So that's what happened to me a year and a half ago by an undergraduate student that thanked me for the advice that he received at the age of 22. So at the age of 39, after making some money, he realized that, you know what, let me get back to university by making a scholarship in, in my name and let me fund it. So now I know that I have a legacy here. It's kind of cool. I have a legacy that I went undergraduate here, I went to law school here. I have a legacy that all of my four kids have, well, three of them have gone through NYU and one is the first year. But I have a legacy that when I'm not here at the age of 98, someone will be benefiting by the work that I've done. And so um, I do find meaning. But for me, it's, it's, it's just the relationship. Like for me, the thank you is not the scholarship, Frank, but the thank you is like when Sherry invites me to her, her graduation function. She invites me to her wedding. She invites me to celebrations of her children. Everyone calls me, Frank, when, and, and Sherry, when things aren't really good. I really like the conversations when things are good. I like the phone calls when things are good. So recently I get a phone call from an executive MBA student. Her name is Marcy who has asked me to officiate her wedding. Her wedding September 7, 2018. So Frank, this is going to be my fourth time that I officiated a, a friend and former student's wedding. Oh, that's wow. cool. So it's, you know, it's yes, it's kind of cool, Frank, that if you ever taken my class, and I know Sherry's in there, that you would no longer be scared. So that someone asking you to play chess, it wouldn't be chess you would have the competency to understand those legal issues. You may not have the opinion or the solution, but there you can call me. But for me, that classroom is family. So it's me every day seeing, you know, just wonderful group of people and we, you know, and that we have a good time and we learn. And that's what's fascinating. I think one of the things that I really particularly like about your story is that you told us about this really important moment in your life when you met Omar and it blossomed into a friendship and how it has taught you to open your mind and um, to build relationships with unexpected people. But what, what I really like is to see you living that lesson. So not only did you learn it and and speak it, but you live it through all of your interactions. And we see it every day in the classroom. You know, I think that in and of itself is a lesson to all of us, which is, you know, listen, observe, learn, and then live. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of really cool when you sort of live a life that's not work. Yeah, right? Yeah. If only they could put that in the NYU marketing material. Yeah. I didn't it see it. Really, it's tough. It's I tough. Didn't, I didn't see it. EQ, IQ, and love. <laughs> I, I think they should add a third thing. Well, isn't there, isn't the uh, Professor Haight, doesn't he teach a class about, like, happiness and wisdom and work? 
Oh, Jonathan? yeah. I think, I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah that yeah. rings a bell. Is that creativity? I don't know. I don't I'll know. have to put that in the liner notes for this episode. Yeah, exactly. But, so, as, as a closing comment, I want to bring something up that's actually from your class syllabus. Is that, is, I think it's the last line in your class syllabus where you say to people, remember to search and find passion in your life. Now, a lot of people spend their whole life and they can't do that. If someone's listening to this and they're one of those people, what advice would you have for them? Okay, so having been really massively de- sad, massively anxious, I don't think I was depressed when I was 18 because I got into bed. Um, but from 25 to about 30, there were some dif- difficult times work-related. So I sh- I'm going to answer that question by saying that I've shared the moments of, of not being satisfied, not having contentment. I've shared the moments of looking forward to going to sleep so I can forget about what just happened and, and just have a nice dream. Um, but now, I guess for close to at least 25 years, close to 25 years, I go to sleep every day looking forward to the next day. And so whether that's sustainable contentment or sustainable passion, I do believe it's a choice. It's not a choice when people have, you know, illnesses. It's not always a choice for them. It's not always a choice that when you have such debt that you have to pay back your debt. But if we can exclude those two items, it's a choice. It's a choice to find sustainable contentment. And so when my daughter was born at the age of 27, and I was working at a big law firm, and the firm in which I got that job a couple of weeks before I graduated did not have the same culture, did not have the same value system, and I was put in a department that was not playing at that time to my strengths or my superhuman strengths. And I was miserable. So every day I was miserable, but for the one day a week where I was teaching as an adjunct. And that time I think I was being paid $500 an hour. And wow, I, I can only relate this to a jogger. A jogger gets run as high. I jog every day, I don't get run as high. I got run as high in the classroom. I do all the time get that high in the classroom. Not every day, but I got it like last week that I shared with the class. I got that run as high when I walked down that aisle when I married my wife. I felt that I was floating. So when my daughter was born and I realized, well, I can't go home and sing in the shower. I can't sing to her. I can't really smile because I'm just thinking about going into work and not enjoying the culture, the value, my skill sets. So I stopped lying to myself. That was the critical moment. That to find sustainable contentment, you can. You can with your, your, your loved ones. You can with your community of dear friends. And you can find it in what you do probably 60% of your life, maybe a little bit more, those so-called work hours. Um, I say remove compensation from the picture, and you'll find it. And then when you find your super skills, you'll make enough money to travel the world, to go to the movies, to go to Broadway shows. You'll see a lot. So for me, that lived a life without passion, that lives a life now, and I sometimes describe it as sustainable contentment. Maybe passion goes up and down. Contentment is like really flat. Um, yeah, I'm convinced you can create your own luck. You know, does that answer? Your oh, question? that, that That's more than answers more, the that question. That is fantastic. Yeah, I'd say what love, passion, the communal oneness of all things, and I think above all, the continual search for it. I tell you what, you've said it all. You have said it all today. I think that I've been greatly impacted by a lot of this conversation, for sure. I, I can only imagine what our listeners will think when they hear it, but we really appreciate you coming in. This was you. unbelievable. 
Thank you this so much for your Sherry, time. Thank you. thank you, Sherry. Thank you for inviting me. It's such a pleasure yeah, to have you. Yeah, out. it was great. Oh, it's it all Sherry. Wonderful. Sherry's in charge. She makes, <laughs> it, she makes it happen. She makes it happen, man. Um, so, thank you both. Thanks for a terrific time. Absolutely. absolutely. And did you have did you have fun? I had a blast. Oh, great. Yeah, no, I, it was micro- terrific. How did the headphones work out? You get used to it. Okay, you, you really do. do. Right, you soak in. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No Lean back. Yeah, Sherry, relax. I tell you what, you've stored some great episodes, and this one's a winner. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Sherry. I'll thanks, see Frank. you in class in about 30 minutes. It's 2.30. It's 2.30? <laughs> it's uh, 2.20. Wow. <laughs> no. See you next thanks. week, everybody. Bye, everyone.